You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Southern Fraud True Crime covers cases that are not suitable for young listeners. And there may also be some explicit language used. Listener discretion is advised. The people who think you're guilty will always think you're guilty. The people who think you're innocent will always think you're innocent. Nobody is going to change their mind, so move on. Todd Peterson said this to his father when he was trying to talk him into taking the Alford plea. Michael Peterson, who had spent nearly a decade in prison, had lost everything. He was now indigent. But more than that, he had lost his wife. He had lost all that time with his children. He missed his first grandchild being born. He was about as beat down as a man can get. And he still wanted to go back to court. He still wanted to fight. He did not want to say he was guilty. And his children had to beg him to end it. And it wasn't posturing. This Alford plea was years after Peterson had won a retrial. When the first plea deals were offered... Michael said no, and David Rudolph said, well, then sorry, I can no longer defend you. It wasn't because he would have to do it pro bono. It was because he was so demoralized by the trial we are about to discuss. Rudolph couldn't emotionally handle going back to Durham, a place he felt was so corrupt, a place he felt was so bigoted. Michael Peterson, who had told him from the beginning what Durham was, still wanted to fight. Maybe it was because he had nothing left to lose. As Prosecutor Jim Harden said in his opening statement, this is where the rubber meets the road, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Episode 175, The Never-Ending Staircase, Part 3. On May 5th, 2003, jury selection for Michael's trial began. According to the Herald Sun, it was one of the longest, most complex, and most highly publicized legal proceedings in Durham history. Everything about Michael's case was abnormal. The unprecedented media attention, the inconsistencies in the police investigation, the judge delaying his decision on whether or not to allow Liz Ratliff's death as evidence. Even the courtroom had to be set up with special adaptations. The trial was going to be broadcast live nationwide on Cable's Court TV. To help transmit the signal, Court TV mounted a humongous satellite dish near the courthouse. Jean-Xavier de Lestrade's documentary crew was also filming Michael's trial for the now infamous docuseries, The Staircase. To prepare for all the cameras, a wooden screen was constructed between the jury box and the witness stand. The wood paneling allowed videographers to view the front of the courtroom while still being obscured from jurors. They didn't want to distract them. Even the trial schedule was different from most Durham court cases. Each day, 
jurors would be present from 9.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m., rather than the typical 9.30 to 5. This reduced schedule expanded the pool of potential jurors to include people who couldn't stay in court the entire day. Plus, it helped the jurors stay engaged, which makes sense. A man's life was at stake. But people were pissy about the seemingly special privileges that Michael Peterson's case received. They were confused as to why Michael, a rich white man, received accommodations when other defendants did not. On the one hand, that's what publicity will do. On the other, most murder trials are not going to take months. This trial lasted five months when you include jury selection and all the pretrial hearings. And the publicity was the reason they needed such a large jury pool to begin with. On July 1st, 2003, opening statements for Michael's trial began. The prosecuting attorneys were District Attorney Jim Harden Jr. and Assistant DA Freda Black. Harden gave a 30-minute opening statement in which he claimed the following. Due to bad financial decisions, Michael Peterson was neck deep in debt, specifically $140,000 deep in credit card debt. But Michael was also the beneficiary of his wife Kathleen's $1.4 million life insurance policy. So he beat Kathleen Peterson to death with a fireplace blowpoke, staged the scene as an accident, and called 911 while pretending to be a tragically distraught husband. Also, he could manage his expensive lifestyle with Kathleen's insurance payout. Michael's defense attorney, David Rudolph, rebutted these claims in his own 88-minute opening statement. Rudolph had a lot of ground to cover, since he had no choice but to face some really questionable evidence head-on. First, he played the harrowing 911 call. Harrowing if you believe Michael, that is. Rudolph then started by saying that Michael and Kathleen were the quintessential example of true love, soulmates. He called their relationship idyllic. This would be a mistake, as he technically opened the door to Michael's character, which in this trial would be based on his sexuality. But you can see why it was important to show Michael Peterson was not just a devoted family man, but a man who adored his wife and could not have hurt her. So what was really going on? Rudolph faced the issues with the DA and law enforcement by saying outright that the Durham authorities were out to get Michael. For two years, Michael wrote a bi-weekly column in the Herald Sun that frequently attacked the Durham Police Department and the District Attorney's Office. Michael accused them of racism, corruption, and stupidity. And as Michael said in interviews, when you make fun of people, they don't like that, and they remember it. Rudolph also preemptively discussed Liz Ratliff's death, the mother of Michael's two adopted daughters. In a contentious pretrial hearing, when Rudolph was pleading with Judge Hudson to go ahead and rule on the Ratliff evidence so he could decide about his opening argument, Jim Harden objected and said it would be malpractice for him not to discuss Liz Ratliff because of the media circus he claimed that Rudolph caused. To his credit, David Rudolph remained calm, but basically said, come on. The prosecution had Liz's body exhumed just a couple of weeks before jury selection, creating this circus, and now he is blaming the defense for the media circus? Mm. 
Hudson still refused to rule on the Ratliff evidence before the trial, even though by now they had an autopsy. We will get into that more later, but the issue really should have stopped here. Actually, before here. The poor woman should never have been exhumed and treated like a box of evidence. The trauma this caused her daughters was devastating. But it was done now, and Rudolph had no choice. So he established in his opening that Liz had absolutely died of a stroke, a cerebral hemorrhage. But he also directly called Jim Harden out in front of the jury. He explained that the entire exhumation and autopsy process was a ruse. A smear campaign orchestrated by the prosecution, meant to taint the jury against Michael's character. In Rudolph's words, the district attorneys aimed to create a barrage of negative publicity to prejudice Mr. Peterson's right to a fair trial. And Rudolph was adamant that the prosecution had succeeded. The public had convicted Michael weeks before his trial began. I understand his point, but he's also kind of already telling the jury he's not sure they can be fair. According to the defense, Michael was telling the truth about that night. Kathleen had fallen down the stairs. She was tipsy, though not totally incapacitated, after ingesting a mixture of alcohol and Valium. After the initial fall, Kathleen tried to get up, but she slipped in her blood and fell again. In doing so, she may have struck her head against the staircase's metal chairlift multiple times. That was, perhaps, why there was so much blood. This trial was a doozy. If you've watched the famous Staircase documentary, you've had a taste. And I've given you a big taste of the opening statements because they are the crux of the trial. But if I tried to go chronologically through the rest, I would bore the shit out of you or we would go freaking 10 episodes. I don't know about you, but I prefer my episodes a bit more bite-sized, even if this one is as long as the last one. Sorry about that. Still, there is a reason I rarely do series like these, and I've never done seasons. I don't like living with things in my head this long. What I did want to do was take you inside the lives of the Petersons, so you would understand their family dynamic, so you would get to know Kathleen. So many documentaries and podcasts skip that part. One of the worst criticisms of the docuseries The Staircase is that Kathleen Peterson is portrayed not much more than a victim in a gruesome crime scene. Anyway, that was part one. In part two, I took you step by step through the crime scene and evidence. If you have not listened to the first two parts, I really suggest you do. I think you get a much more balanced idea of not only the Petersons' lives, but the evidence against Michael. I can explain what came out in trial, but I think those episodes help to put you inside 1810 Cedar Street and grasp the magnitude of all that blood and the consequences of how shocking the scene was. But for court, despite how long this episode is, we are going to try and take it more simply. I will try to clarify and summarize in the most comprehensive and interesting way. Rather, we'll focus on addressing each of the main arguments one by one. We will look at the details and the problems with the state's case. But don't think that I'm just straight giving Michael a pass. I just think you can achieve justice 
without playing dirty. I'm going to pause now for a short commercial break. First up is Michael Peterson's financial situation. Was money a motive to murder Kathleen? Remember, the state doesn't have to prove motive, but it sure does help, especially in complex yet completely circumstantial cases like this one. Michael and Kathleen did have a lot of credit card debt, as the prosecution said, but saying Michael was in financial trouble was more than a stretch. According to Rudolph, the Petersons were worth more than $2 million, even after subtracting the credit card debt. He joked to the jury, all of us would like to be in that much trouble. And I would agree. And I also can't help but interject right here and say, for the record, rich people are not like you and me. They use credit cards when they have a gold money clip filled with crisp $100 bills in their pocket. I've seen it. I've worked for millionaires, and I am related to one. They tend to toss their black American Express cards on restaurant tabs rather than pay with the cash they have in their pocket. Or worse, a debit card. That's not how rich people pay. It's because they shop more, they travel more, and they love their frequent flyer miles. They might have the money, but they love to gather the points and rewards from these cards. And the Petersons didn't just have the cards this way for show. They also had three kids in college who they gave credit cards to for living expenses. When you weigh that credit card debt of $143,000 against the $2 million they were worth, it's not that much. Now, that amount is staggering to normal people. It's the price of a whole ass house in parts of the U.S. But again, rich people are not like you and me. Here's another example. The prosecution also tried to point out that Kathleen was in danger of losing her high-paying job. Around the time of her death, her employer, Nortel, was laying off thousands of people. And, the prosecution stated, Michael had no salary which was technically true. In December of 2001, Michael was not earning an official salary because he did not have a so-called day job. If Kathleen had lost her job, Prosecutor Jim Harden argued that the couple would have gone into a financial tailspin. And it did seem like money was tighter in the Peterson household. Kathleen's sister Candace testified that Kathleen often complained about money struggles. And in November of 2001, Michael emailed his first wife, Patty, about their son's financial situations. Clayton and Todd were both struggling to pay their bills because of their own credit card debt. Michael requested Patty's help in paying off their boys' debt, saying he felt the boys had learned their lesson. These boys were 25 and 27 years old at the time. If anything, I think it's indicative of Michael's habit of spoiling his kids. Also, in a separate email, Michael asked Martha's uncle for assistance in paying her college tuition. Martha was attending an expensive private school in San Francisco. Margaret was attending Tulane in New Orleans, but she was on a partial scholarship. The prosecution argued that these emails showed that Michael was at the end of his financial rope. I think you could argue that Michael was trying to tighten the finances of the children he had brought to the marriage. He was trying to relieve some pressure Kathleen might have been feeling. In that email to Patty, Michael said he simply could not approach Kathleen about helping the boys again. The prosecution made this sound nefarious, but I think it's more simple. 
What if Kathleen felt like Michael's grown sons needed to figure out their own problems? They had three daughters in college, just starting out, and Michael's sons were still party boys who couldn't pay their bills. That's what this sounds like to me. If Michael still wants to bail out the boys, he needs to go to Patty, who is their mother to do it. Kathleen raised Margaret and Martha like her own daughters. They were very close in age to her daughter, Caitlin. But Todd and Clayton were older. There was more of a step-parent relationship. And let's not forget how much grief Clayton had recently caused the family with his stint in prison. Kathleen still stood by him, just like Michael did, and helped support him. But I can imagine her patience was running thin. As for asking the Ratliff uncle for help with Martha's tuition, well, why not if he could afford it? The uncle was a doctor. Michael was a novelist with some success, but not the kind of reliable wealth that a doctor would be making. And the silliest part of putting this extremely friendly email into evidence is the uncle's reply. He said, that sounds great. I am now committing to 5,000 per semester till death do us part. That's 10 grand a year he just committed to paying on his niece's education. Michael had taken on the expense of raising these young women their whole lives. Now they were attending expensive out-of-state colleges. It's not like he was pulling them out of school if the rich uncle couldn't chip in, but why not ask? And the uncle was happy to help. It also shows that even though Margaret and Martha had wealthy blood relatives who could have taken them in, Michael Peterson chose to accept his responsibility that George and Liz had given him and raised the girls as his daughters. That doesn't sound like a man concerned with his fortune. Rudolph explained that the prosecution was giving a wildly distorted view of the Petersons' finances. Michael is repeatedly described as unemployed, rather than a 58-year-old retired man with a pension from the Marines. His military disability pension provided him with $45,000 a year, which is about $75,000 today, and a lot more than most people make. The North Carolina median income right now is only about $30,000. The Petersons also owned rental properties, and according to Michael, they brought in around $5,000 in cash a month as well. Rudolph had to exhaustively go through the state's ledger of evidence, pointing out these discrepancies. Also, Michael's last book paid for a great portion of the house he owned with Kathleen. He got 500000 for that book and used half, 250000 as a down payment on their mansion. So yes, you can see 48-year-old Kathleen as the breadwinner for her family because of her day job, but I'm not sure that characterization is completely fair. Michael did contribute financially, especially early on and the film rights to one of his books had literally just been sold. And Kathleen felt so comfortable with their finances that she actually deferred 80% of her Nortel salary and bonus, meaning she didn't need it now and would rather have it later. She made $145,000 a year before bonuses. That's about a quarter million today. She was deferring around $10,000 a month. Can you imagine being able to defer 80% of your salary? It's an insane thought to normal people. Even if you aren't living paycheck to paycheck, like so many people have to, the idea of being able to defer any of your paycheck is still probably wild to you. 
Kathleen was deferring 80% of her salary, but bitching about bills to her sister. It was hard to understand. Well, Nortel's stock was plummeting, and that was hitting Kathleen's retirement hard. She would still have her pension, but her stocks were where she was really building wealth for retirement. Her stocks had been worth $2 million in September of 2000. Now they were worth around 50000 though I've seen differing amounts. This was when the dot-com bubble burst, and Nortel wasn't the only company reeling. Kathleen had also been put on an optimization list, which meant she was due to be laid off. Nortel, whose home office was in Canada, as I said, was laying off thousands of employees. But Kathleen was only on this list for three days, and a co-worker testified that there was no evidence she ever knew about this. But still, she was very stressed about work, tasked with laying off her own staff, and I'm sure extremely upset about the recent and extreme loss in her stocks at Nortel. Which really sucks. It does. But it doesn't mean they were poor. You cannot say that a family who is worth millions is in financial straits, even if they had just taken a hit. So, Michael wasn't on the brink of losing everything. He was fine. His family was fine. And he had a community to lean on if he needed to, like his ex-wife Patty, Martha and Margaret's uncle, and his brother Bill, who was a successful estate attorney. The Petersons would never want for anything. Rudolph fought hard against allowing the financial testimony in at all. It was speculative evidence at best. The judge overruled and said he could handle it on a cross, and he did as briefly and painlessly as he could, even though it was mind-numbing testimony. Andrea and I have tried hard to keep it basic and not boring for you. The main problem was that the state was not showing cash flowing in and out of the Petersons' five checking accounts correctly. The state's financial expert, who by the way was also employed by the SBI, was showing debits but not even normal deposits like when Kathleen was reimbursed for travel. He gave a big credit card debt number, but didn't explain that it was spread over 20 different lines of credit. Financial testimony is grueling, and it really did show what the state wanted it to. When you wonder why a trial goes on like this for months, it's this type of evidence that doesn't really go anywhere. And yet, Rudolph still had to battle it out. He made a motion of limine about the financial evidence that the judge overruled. But on the flip side, there's no denying that Michael received a lot of money upon Kathleen's death. $29,000 from her 401k, almost $100,000 from her pension, $223,000 in deferred income payouts, and $1.4 million in life insurance. And the prosecution did prove that over the past several years, the Petersons were in the red. For three years, Kathleen and Michael had withdrawn at least 100000 more from their bank accounts than they had put in them. But they were not impoverished. They had financial reserves if they needed them. It honestly sounds like they had been careless with their finances because they could be, playing the credit and assets game rather than keeping a lot of cash. The problems at Nortel were fairly new. It had happened in just the last few months. It was enough to cause her worry when she was an executive who saw the layoffs and owned stock options. 
But as Michael wrote in another email, and as Kathleen herself indicated to friends, she was a fighter who would see it through to the end. She was not giving up. If anything, she was working harder. She had always been driven to succeed, and she hadn't worked her way up the male-dominated corporate ladder at Nortel just to give up now. By the way, I got a comment from a man who worked with Kathleen at Nortel. He said she was a sweetheart, but a tough cookie. I love that. It tracks so simply with everything I've learned about Kathleen's character. She was smart as a whip, and she was witty and warm. People really did adore her. But now, let's talk about finances as a motive for real. If Michael was worried about the credit card debt or whatever other financial stressors the prosecution believed, why would he kill Kathleen? It is a short-term solution for a long-term problem, if you can even find a problem. The state went to great lengths to prove that the Petersons were living beyond their means. They had wealthy tastes, and regardless of the ebb and flow of finances, they didn't change how they lived. I guess they think Michael would pay off those bills and live on her death benefits for the rest of his life, instead of continuing to amass wealth as he and Kathleen were doing instead of continuing to enjoy the lifestyle he and Kathleen were used to. It really doesn't make sense as a motive. If anything, Michael's lifestyle would have had to change dramatically after Kathleen's death. He didn't make the kind of money she did. Now, moving on from the Petersons' finances. Kathleen's autopsy was yet another heated battleground for the trial. Medical examiners found evidence of early acute ischemic neuronal necrosis in Kathleen's cerebellum and cerebrum. Dear Internet, if I mispronounced that, spare me your emails. That was hard. Basically, these are rare red neurons in Kathleen's brain. Their presence indicated that Kathleen's brain did not receive enough blood and therefore oxygen for a significant period before her death. Let me interject and apologize here. I forgot to mention the red neurons in the last episode when we went through Kathleen's autopsy. There was a lot of ground to cover and I forgot to go into it because it is complicated. So here we go. According to testimony from the prosecution's expert, who was a University of North Carolina neuropathologist, these neurons proved Kathleen may have been lying at the bottom of the staircase, barely alive for hours. Those red neurons form as the brain is struggling to operate with less oxygen. But according to the testimony of the defense's expert, who was the former chief of neurology at Northwestern University, these red neurons could have developed in only 30 minutes, particularly if it was caused by a major trauma like the sudden blood loss Kathleen suffered. 30 minutes fits Michael's timetable of events. Several hours does not. So, as usual in big murder trials, we have a battle of the experts, which is going to be a huge issue in this trial because Freda Black, the assistant DA working second chair to Harden, would make really inappropriate arguments about the state's experts. But we will get to that. I think what is fair here is that there is no way to prove whether or not those red neurons were the result of 30 minutes or three hours. It's something that if I was a juror, I would have to just set aside. 
there were reasonable explanations from legitimate experts on both sides. But of course, that's up to how you feel about it. I saw someone in the Facebook group refer to these neurons and what they had heard about them on a different podcast. At the risk of saying I'm trashing someone else, that other podcast did not bother to also give the information the defense expert testified to. You've got to tell both sides or it's not fair. I still said it's up to you as it would be for a juror to decide. And now we get to Kathleen's head injuries. If you haven't looked up a picture of Kathleen Peterson's head lacerations yet, I say do it if you can stomach it because you will then understand a lot about this case. It is these photos that changed Kathleen's sisters and her daughter Caitlin's minds about Michael. Up until Jim Harden and Freda Black called them into their offices and offered to show them the autopsy and crime scene photos, they did not believe that Michael Peterson had murdered their sister and mother. That is a very basic tenet of this trial. And I can say it's unusual that prosecutors would want the family to see autopsy photos, much less gruesome crime scene photos. They tend to go out of their way to shield them, often warning them to stay away from court on the days the photos will be shown. So why would Harden do this? Really, the only reason is that it would be much more difficult to prosecute a man for the murder of his wife, who had the support of his entire family, including his stepdaughter and in-laws. Candace was a passionate supporter of Michael in the beginning. She was the first one to call them soulmates, until she saw these photos. And he knew very well how difficult it is for people who are not medical professionals to see these wounds and not have a visceral reaction. It's just like all that blood at the crime scene. Seasoned law enforcement were so disturbed, they immediately thought murder rather than accident. And that became tunnel vision, looking for proof of their suspicions instead of looking for the truth. Do you know that old saying, when you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras? Well, the sheer amount of blood in that staircase screamed zebras. And now the autopsy photos had the same effect on Kathleen's family. I cannot imagine showing those photos to her daughter. Dr. Ferris Bandak, the former director of the Head Injury Research Program at the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, testified that Kathleen's injuries could have been the result of a fall. He said Kathleen could have fallen backwards after walking partially up the staircase and stumbling. She had hit her head against two surfaces as she tumbled down. Then, Kathleen may have stood up only to slip and fall again, hitting her head twice more. The two falls would produce four impacts, and even though there were only four impacts, Dr. Bandak believed this could cause Kathleen's seven lacerations because of the way the delicate skin of her scalp would tear. Another expert, Dr. Jan Leitstma, who was the former chief of neurology at Northwestern University, also determined that Kathleen's injuries could have been from a fall. According to Dr. Leitzma, the lacerations were consistent with Kathleen's head striking a flat surface, like stair steps, and then the skin of her scalp split. But the North Carolina assistant pathologist, Dr. Deborah Radish, disagreed. Dr. Radish testified 
that Kathleen had most likely been beaten to death, and the perfect weapon to cause Kathleen's lacerations without fracturing her skull or badly damaging her brain? A fireplace blowpoke. Dr. Radish did not name this as the instrument, but she did say the wounds were the result of a beating. It was the prosecution who chose the blowpoke, and they did not come up with it on their own. Candace Zamparini, Kathleen's sister, had a revelation about this blowpoke. She had given one to all of her siblings years and years ago, before Kathleen and Michael were even together. A blowpoke is not like a fireplace poker you might be picturing, a tough piece of iron that would certainly make quite the murder weapon. A blowpoke is long and metal with a hook on the end, but it is hollow and therefore somewhat flimsy. It is meant for a person to literally blow through into a fireplace to stoke the flames. It is the exact flimsiness that caused the prosecution to grasp onto the blowpoke as a murder weapon once Candace brought it to them. What else could cause those lacerations on Kathleen's scalp without fracturing her skull or otherwise cause any traumatic brain injury? And now the prosecution could say that the Peterson's blowpoke was mysteriously missing. They searched that whole property and couldn't find it. But to Michael and his kids, it wasn't so mysterious. They didn't remember it at all. Margaret would go through hours and hours of old video footage of Christmas's past looking for the blowpoke at the fireplace and did not see it. But Candace insisted she had seen it there, and it had only recently gone missing. I'm going to pause now to hear a word from today's sponsor. If you're a regular listener, you know I always recommend Simply Safe Home Security, and I'm not the only one. U.S. News recently named Simply Safe the best home security system of 2023, and CNET recently awarded them their editor's choice for home security. There are many reasons why Simply Safe is trusted by experts and customers alike. Working from home means I'm home alone a lot, and I really like the feeling of control that the Simply Safe system gives me. You can lock and unlock your doors, access your cameras, and arm and disarm your system from anywhere. Simply Safe is designed with cutting-edge security technology and powered by 24/7 professional monitoring. In an emergency, Simply Safe's professional monitoring agents use Fast Protect technology to capture critical evidence and verify the threat is real, so you can get priority police dispatch. 24-7 professional monitoring service costs under $1 a day, less than half the price of a traditional home security system. Customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafe.com slash southernfried. Go today and claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off your order with interactive monitoring. That's simplysafe.com slash southernfried. There's no safe like Simply Safe. At the beginning of Michael's trial, the prosecution conceded that no murder weapon was found in the Peterson home. However, the prosecution was confident, based on Kathleen's seven lacerations and zero skull fractures, that Michael had used a blowpoke to kill her. The prosecution obtained an exact replica of the blowpoke from Candace and then referenced it frequently. They allowed the jurors to hold and examine it. It was the perfect weapon. Hollow, light, the very specific kind of weapon required to kill Kathleen without causing any skull fractures 
or brain damage. There were several dings on the walls of the enclosed stairwell where Kathleen was found. The prosecution claimed the marks were from Michael as he swung the fireplace blowpoke back and forth, beating Kathleen, he hit the walls. But the defense argued that these dings were just normal wear and tear from a big family running up and down the back staircase. They also pointed out how challenging it would be to kill anyone in that stairwell with that blowpoke. The stairwell was only 42 inches wide. The fireplace blowpoke was 40 inches. Maneuvering it would be difficult. Also, there was no blood spatter on the ceiling of the staircase, as you would expect in a beating death like this. A weapon would be raised over the killer's head as he brought it back down each swing, creating blood spatter high up. There was no cast-off patterns indicating a beating either. But Dwayne Deaver actually sat on that witness stand and explained that if Michael wiped off the blowpoke in between the strikes to Kathleen's head, then there wouldn't be spatter. As if Michael, or any killer, would stop between blows and clean the weapon. You know, the weapon the police never actually found. In an effort to find this alleged murder weapon, Michael's house was supposedly searched exhaustively. According to Durham Police testimony, 50 investigators and a trained dog carefully went through every last square inch of the Peterson home and grounds. And yet, the alleged murder weapon was overlooked. It actually wasn't. A decade later, a photograph of the missing blowpoke that had been sitting in the DA's files was found. It had not been turned over to the defense in discovery. That's a Brady violation, and it's very serious. But it's the tip of the iceberg we will get into. For now, think of it as the mysteriously missing blowpoke as Prosecutor Jim Harden had harped. In the last weeks of the trial, Michael's eldest son Clayton found the blowpoke in the Petersons' boiler room. It was covered in dust, cobwebs, and dead bugs. Previously, the prosecution said that Michael's blowpoke would be badly damaged after murdering Kathleen. It wasn't sturdy. Bashing it against her skull seven times would definitely bend it. But Michael's newly discovered blowpoke was in perfect condition, unbent. Clearly, no one had used it in quite some time, certainly not to bludgeon someone to death. And it was tested for blood and DNA. It was negative. Nothing was on it. When Michael's defense presented the newly found blowpoke to the jurors, the prosecution swiftly changed their tune. Michael hadn't killed Kathleen with a blowpoke. He had killed her with something like a blowpoke. They had never said for certain it was the murder weapon. They had just introduced it as the imaginary evidence and waved it around the courtroom before letting the jury pass it around. No biggie. It is a biggie. How do you enter a murder weapon into evidence when you don't have one? Why did they need it? Because they needed to establish that Kathleen was beaten to death rather than a fall. Were her injuries unusual for a fall? Sure, no doubt, but not necessarily unheard of. If she only fell in those first few steps and popped her head against the sharp crown molding, it's very possible it would cause a laceration, one that would get bigger as she fell again in her own blood, hitting her head again and causing another laceration, but not hard enough to crack her skull because she didn't fall down very many steps. And frankly, 
There are other ways Michael could have caused those lacerations if the prosecution had wanted to show other ways he could have killed her. But the prosecution was determined to portray this as a brutal beating because that makes it first-degree murder, not second, not manslaughter, not heat of passion, first-degree. That's why it was their only theory of the crime. And now we will move on to Elizabeth Ratliff's untimely death way back from 1985. The defense argued that Liz's death should have never been mentioned in Michael's trial. The prosecution argued that her death fell under a specific rule of evidence. The 404B rule, stating that evidence from a past similar and suspicious circumstance could be entered into the trial, even if the defendant was considered innocent at the time. It's the kind of thing you see on fictional crime shows all the time. Your Honor, this evidence is admissible to show a pattern. But it's not actually as easy as it looks on TV. But, after Judge Hudson allowed Liz Ratliff's death to be used as evidence in Michael's trial, the argument yet again became another battle of the experts. I went over Liz's death in the last episode, but to briefly recap, she died from a cerebral hemorrhage. She fell down the stairs when this stroke-like event occurred, and she did incur injuries from the fall. The reason Michael was now a suspect was because of the strange coincidence of the two women dead at the bottom of a staircase. Michael had also seen Liz the night before. Liz and her girls had dinner with Mike, Patty, and the boys, and then he walked them home. They only lived a few doors down, and he helped Liz get the girls to bed, he took out the garbage, and he left. Things he had been doing to help her since her husband had died, because Liz was really struggling. When the nanny came the next morning, she found Liz at the bottom of the staircase. She had thought she was still alive because her body was warm. She ran screaming to the Petersons for help, and Michael ran over. But Liz was gone. She was likely warm from the heated flooring. But she had not been dead long. A doctor was sent to the home in Germany, which was per German law for an unattended death. The doctor found that Liz was not yet in rigor mortis so he performed a spinal tap on her and found blood in the fluid, which is an indicator of that type of hemorrhage or aneurysm. Then her body was taken by the army for a full autopsy, and a section of her brain, more than half, was sent to the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, who reviewed the autopsy as well as her brain tissue and confirmed her death was from a cerebral hemorrhage. The U.S. Army investigator who was at the scene of Liz's death in Germany testified that Liz's death was not a homicide. He explained that he did not observe anything that would lead him to believe that Ratliff died by other than natural causes. The German police also agreed that Liz's death was natural. But the Durham DA decided to exhume Elizabeth Ratliff and make sure the findings were correct disregarding the expert opinions of German and American doctors. Dr. Deborah Radish, the assistant forensic pathologist for the prosecution, stated she thought Liz died from blunt force trauma, just like Kathleen. She actually wrote homicidal attack in her notes, which is improper. You can check a box for manner of death, but you are not supposed to use that kind of language in the notes. 
but Dr. Radish could not be certain Liz had not died from another cause like a fall or a stroke. Only about a third of Liz's brain tissue was left after the autopsy over 18 years ago. And yet, Radish's testimony that it was a homicidal attack was given as fact by the state. The prosecution used Liz's death to establish that Michael may have known how to stage a stairway accident, one just like Kathleen's. What is so sad is that the prosecution could have made this argument without exhuming a human being, disturbing her final resting place and greatly upsetting her daughters, who had just lost their adoptive mother. All they had to do was bring up this coincidence. That is enough for most people, even today, who debate it online without even really knowing the facts of Liz's death. It's disgusting to me. And if you want to call me biased for that, that's fine. But I urge you to hold that thought until the end of this episode. I may surprise you. It is possible to believe the mention of the Liz Ratliff coincidence is fair under the 404B rule without needing to exhume her body especially if you were just suggesting that Michael got the idea from her death. But at any rate, it's difficult to comprehend why Michael would kill Liz. As a result of her death, the state claimed Michael gained only $70,000 through life insurance. And at Liz's explicit request, Michael raised her two daughters. Michael has also denied that Liz had life insurance. It was the money left over after her husband, George, had died in combat, and what the things in her estate were worth. In court, David Rudolph's second chair, Tom Maher, said it was 35000 Regardless, I also explained on the last episode just how far that much money would go in raising two little girls. Just a little bit over two years. Not to mention the emotional responsibility of raising these girls. Margaret and Martha Ratliff were the very heart of Michael's trial. They sat behind him every day, never wavering in their support of the man they called dad, the only father they remembered. And despite their trauma and suffering, the DA's office pushed for DNA tests to prove who their parents were and exhumed their birth mother. And to make matters worse, this was not just a competition of experts. The prosecution put up a parade of Liz Ratliff's friends who traveled from Germany to talk about a death scene 18 years prior. They did say they saw blood, and there would have had to have been blood. The doctor and other authorities said Liz was lying in a pool of blood, but not like the scene of Kathleen's death. Otherwise, you can be sure the army, if not the German authorities, would have photographed the scene. One woman named Cheryl, who did say she saw the blood, also explained the severe headaches Liz had been suffering before her death. She had made an appointment with a doctor because the headaches were so bad. She also suffered from a blood disorder called von Willebrand, in which your blood doesn't clot properly. That's why her official autopsy stated it was a cerebral hemorrhage event combined with her underlying health problems. The nanny, named Barbara, also testified, basically explaining how hysterical she had been and how upsetting it was to find the body, and that her focus had been to get the little girls out of the house without them seeing their mother on the floor. Then a woman named Amy Beth testified. She and her husband, a major in the army, 
ran over to Liz's when she got word of her death. Amy Beth had emailed with investigator Art Holland before coming to America to testify and never said anything about the death being foul play. She also did not even mention Michael Peterson as she described the scene that day, even though she knew she was answering Holland about the Peterson investigation. Now, on the stand, she tearfully said she had always suspected Liz was murdered. David Rudolph let his second chair, Tom Maher, cross-examine Amy Beth. He made her look extremely foolish. Maher didn't even stand up. He leaned back in his chair and fired questions at her mildly but pointedly. Why didn't you go to the police? The German police are scary, she said. Your husband, a major in the U.S. Army, was there. Why didn't he? Well, he said if a house was on fire, you let the firemen put it out. So, then when would you jump in to help with the fire? Well, I am now. Do they have telephones in Germany? Yes. You didn't write anything about foul play or Michael Peterson in your statement to Investigator Holland. Why is that? I am only just now remembering, after seeing all my old friends again, I'm having flashbacks. You're having flashbacks, he said. I'm obviously paraphrasing, but it is how ridiculous she sounded. This woman sat there and lied and was caught in her lies with Maher's quiet but scathing questions. It would be comical if they were not discussing the death of a woman who had been exhumed after Amy Beth, Cheryl, and the nanny all flew in to testify against Michael, even though they had never reported anything suspicious to German or American authorities when their good friend actually died. I will never understand how the Liz Ratliff evidence was allowed in, or at the very least, why they were allowed to exhume her and drive her in a hearse to North Carolina to have Deborah Radish do an autopsy 18 years after she was buried. How could they think this autopsy would be more accurate, much less fair? What gives them the right to second-guess German and American authorities who ruled the death natural? I'm going to pause now to hear a word from today's sponsors. Do you love playing games that send you down rabbit holes as you search for the truth? Then June's Journey is the game for you. Play as the intrepid June Parker and follow her story to solve the death of her sister. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes to uncover new clues in this thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. Playing this game relaxes me, but at the same time makes me think. And it's fun to play a starring role in an adventure game full of danger and romance. With June's Journey, a gripping murder mystery adventure is always just a tap away. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. In Chapter 2, I confronted a mob enforcer named Eddie, but I stayed on Eddie's good side and kept hunting for clues until the FBI brought Eddie down. I learned he wasn't my suspect, but he did have a letter in his pocket sending me on my next clue in this mystery. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as PC through Facebook games. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life is all about change. We are constantly evolving. If you had told me how different my life would be in my 40s in comparison to my 30s, I wouldn't have believed you. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. Therapy has helped me through difficult times in my life, no doubt. 
but it's also given me the positive coping skills in my ever-evolving life. My 50s are still a little bit away, but they don't seem as scary as they used to. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Southern today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Southern. And now I'll discuss the argument we all knew was coming, Michael's cheating and therefore his bisexuality. Several weeks into Michael's trial, Judge Hudson ruled that the evidence from Michael's computer would be allowed in court, namely the gay pornography and suggestive emails from Michael to another man. This was a controversial decision. David Rudolph knew that Michael's bisexuality would probably bias the jurors. But according to Judge Hudson, the risk was worth it. After all, the evidence was now relevant. The defense had stated that Michael and Kathleen's marriage was idyllic. The prosecution was allowed to rebut that argument. And Michael's infidelity with men could imply that his marriage was not actually the fairy tale of soulmates. As Prosecutor Freda Black said in her closing argument, According to the persons that know her well, including most especially her sister, she would have been infuriated by learning that her husband, who she truly loved, was bisexual and having an extramarital relationship, not even with another woman, but with a man, which would be humiliating and embarrassing to her. Additionally, Judge Hudson felt the computer evidence helped the prosecution establish a potential motive. The prosecution painted this picture for the jury. Michael was cheating on Kathleen with men, so he was clearly unhappy in his marriage. When Kathleen saw the evidence of that cheating on Michael's computer, she confronted him. She was upset about his infidelity and secret gay affairs, as the state put it. Michael, outraged by being caught and motivated by his financial stress, killed Kathleen. Let's be clear. The Kathleen found Michael's gay stuff motive is a theory, not a proven reality. There was literally no evidence that Kathleen Peterson accessed the computer, Michael's gay porn, or his emails to another man before her death. As of 11 p.m. on the night of her death, Kathleen spoke to her Nortel colleague, Helen, on the phone. Helen had called with the bad news of an early morning conference call the next day, on a Sunday, that Kathleen had to take. Helen needed to send her a document to review. Kathleen had not brought her laptop home because she wasn't supposed to be working. So she gave Helen Michael's email address. Helen testified that she heard no signs that the Petersons were fighting. Following their conversation, Helen sent Kathleen an email. But a computer expert testified that Kathleen did not open Helen's email. In fact, on cross-examination, the state's computer expert was forced to admit that no one had accessed that computer since 4 p.m. that afternoon, long before Michael and Kathleen had drinks and dinner, long before Helen had called Kathleen to tell her about the conference call. So, how did Kathleen discover Michael's bisexuality and cheating? Well, the state claimed that she did somehow get into his email and found the emails to the escort Brad. 
from months earlier. Kathleen would have had to scroll through months of Michael's emails to find his communications with Brad. Why would she do that if she was just looking for her co-worker's email? That is, if she magically accessed the computer that night, even though the state's own experts said it had not been touched. Over the years, Michael has persistently claimed that Kathleen knew of his bisexuality and that she knew of Michael's sexual trysts with men. According to Michael, Kathleen understood it was just sex. This was never proven, and obviously, Michael had every reason to lie about this. In Michael's favor, he called a male escort three times on a phone bill under Kathleen's name, so she may have known. It doesn't appear that he was trying very hard to hide it. It's on phone bills. It's in undeleted emails. And let's talk about these emails, those that Michael sent to the escort known as Brad. These emails also worked in his favor. Although he was arranging to pay for sex with Brad, he maintained how much he loved Kathleen. Michael wrote, I'm married very happily to a dynamite wife. And as I said, which is really important, these emails from Michael to Brad were months old. Michael hadn't reached out to Brad in quite some time. And due to some scheduling conflicts, Michael and Brad had never even met in person. But even if Kathleen had gotten to those emails, she would have seen a proposition for sex, not a romantic relationship. Would it have hurt? Maybe. Probably, even. But you know what? You cannot prove she saw the emails or knew anything about it because she never accessed his email that night. Also, for the record, Brad the escort was one of the most engaging witnesses at trial. He explained that most men who hired him were married and that their wives often knew they were bisexual. And typically, those men complained about their wives. They didn't talk about how much they loved them. When asked who his clients typically were, Brad said usually professionals because his rates weren't cheap. Doctors, attorneys, and one judge which caused Judge Orlando Hudson to speak up and say, not this judge, which had the courtroom howling with laughter. I don't believe the state did a good job trying to use Michael's bisexuality as a motive. They couldn't even find one witness who had slept with him to testify. But I do believe they succeeded in prejudicing the jury. I don't think anyone can look at it with 2023 eyes and not see how homophobic and prejudicial it was to Michael's case. Jim Harden was careful with his words, and he didn't raise his voice much. He left the wet work to Freda Black. Freda became a dubious celebrity. She dressed like she was going to church, not business suits, but a lot of frilly dresses, and she had a loud, thick Southern accent that she used to her advantage. One of the most famous lines in this trial is her repeatedly calling the evidence on Michael's computer, pure tea filth. She repeated it over and over, pure tea filth. She showed the jury photos and said that is hardcore porn. And I don't mean to offend you, she says, but Brad did say they were going to have anal sex. She constantly put these ideas into the jurors' heads. Now, the jurors would later insist that they didn't consider Michael's sexuality. But come on, would they really admit to that? How could they not come away from the trial with a certain idea of Michael Peterson's character? 
when Freda kept saying, pure tea filth, hardcore porn, and showed them the printed out photos of porn. No, the jury said they believed the blood evidence and that they particularly liked Dwayne Deaver, which is astonishing to me. Watching that man's testimony is like watching paint dry. We do know later that he lied a lot. But for now, I can tell you that out of a 6,000-page transcript, Deaver's testimony and cross made up a 1,000 pages. And as much as Freda's closing argument was homophobic, she also relied very much on another inappropriate tactic. She repeatedly took shots at the defense expert witnesses while saying over and over that the state's experts worked for them, the jurors. They didn't make extra money to testify, she said, as the defense experts who were paid to come and testify did. She made fun of them for traveling around and giving speeches. Dwayne Deaver wasn't allowed to do that, she said. The men she made fun of were world-renowned forensic pathologists. It's why people pay to hear them speak. It's why they are always allowed to give expert testimony. I'll get to that more in the end during the appeals and where they are now. But as far as trial testimony went, Freda made a lot of errors that I'm sure she later regretted. But now let's address all things blood related. Two paramedics testified that the blood around Kathleen's body was dry. But as I have said before, they did not write it in their reports. One of the paramedics didn't mention the dry blood to investigating officers until his second interview. I'll spoil the ending of the dry blood debate for you. Eighty witnesses were cross-examined. The trial lasted 63 days, spread over three months. Even a video of the crime scene was shown to the jury, and it is still unclear if the blood was dry. That's another thing I saw debated in the group. I never said Kathleen was still bleeding. I said that her clothing was so saturated that the blood dripped as they put her in a body bag. Then there's the sheer amount of blood. The prosecution stated that the blood was on Kathleen, under Kathleen, beside Kathleen. It was all over. They also said luminol tests showed footprints leading away from Kathleen's body to the kitchen and laundry room. I talked about this luminol testing in part two. Dan George, the crime scene expert who did the testing, did not take any photographs of the alleged luminol response. He did not draw a diagram, nothing. Not until 16 months after the fact for the purposes of Michael's trial. And even then, the diagram was considered incomplete. Michael's bloody shoe print was also found on the back of Kathleen's pant leg. The defense argued that this could have occurred when Michael was attempting to help Kathleen. They asserted that since the footprint was not smeared, it was made when Kathleen wasn't moving. However, the prosecution claimed that Michael could have kicked Kathleen without smearing that bloody shoe print. Okay, so where was the corresponding bruise? Kathleen did have some small bruises and abrasions, but not the type you get from someone kicking you. At one point, Michael's blood-stained khaki shorts were held up for the jury to consider. The prosecution argued that they were bloody because Michael had bludgeoned Kathleen. But the defense disagreed. They argued that authorities put the shorts in the bag without photographing them or otherwise recording the staining pattern. 
There was a chance that the short stains had been transferred in the bag, meaning that they no longer reflected anything valuable about the December 9th crime scene. The blood could have been from Michael's attack just as easily as it could have been from him cradling his dead wife. Remember how I told you that Michael threw himself on Kathleen's body in front of several police officers and his son? Kathleen's clothes were still dripping blood when she was removed from the scene, and we don't think it's possible that's how Michael got this one tiny splatter in his shorts, either from this incident or even from when he was putting towels under her head trying to help her. The blood being inside the pants leg of his shorts is what really swayed the jury, and they believed Dwayne Deaver as to how it got there. He showed a video of hitting a styrofoam head with a paint-soaked sponge that he was standing over as he hit the head, something like 36 times, too, even though Kathleen only had seven lacerations. He's actually holding his pant leg as he hits the sponge, and he's not even standing in the mock stairwell. No blood spatter expert would say this was a legitimate experiment. He was trying to prove it was possible to splash blood inside the shorts. That's not how you conduct an experiment. You don't do the experiment trying to create a certain outcome. You do the experiment to see what would have happened naturally. Experts would later completely disavow Deaver's methods. And then there's the matter of Michael's dark blue shirt he was wearing that night. This was also covered extensively by SBI agent Dwayne Deaver. Judge Hudson allowed Deaver to testify as a blood spatter expert, but Deaver didn't have blood spatter analysis qualifications. His bachelor's degree was in zoology. His most recent training in advanced blood spatter analysis was a course he took over 15 years prior in 1988. And that course's instructor allegedly falsified her qualifications. But Deaver had been an SBI agent for 18 years, which had to count for something, right? He was the go-to man on bloodstain pattern analysis. He had even trained other officers in the same skill set for over a decade. Deaver's expert testimony was allowed by the judge, as it had been in 60 prior cases. Deaver testified that he couldn't be certain if there was blood spatter on Michael's dark blue shirt. He claimed that blood spatter analysis was a visual practice, so since the shirt was dark, Deaver simply couldn't see the blood. The insinuation by the prosecution was clear. Although Deaver couldn't see Michael's bloody shirt, the blood was there. In the prosecution's eyes, it had to be. It would be nearly impossible for Michael to beat Kathleen to death without bloodying his shirt. But when Michael's defense attorney, David Rudolph, cross-examined Deaver, some crucial information was revealed. Deaver had used an alternate light source test known as Lumalite on Michael's shirt. No blood was found. That's a big win for Michael. If Michael's shirt wasn't bloody, then the jurors could reasonably doubt that he killed Kathleen. But Michael's defense attorney, Rudolph, had no idea about the Lumalite test until this exact moment in cross-examination. Deaver claimed he gave the Lumalite test report to the prosecution, but the prosecutors looked as surprised as Rudolph. To be clear, the prosecuting attorneys have to turn over all of their evidence to the defense, regardless of whether it is helpful to them or not. So what was Dwayne Deaver describing? 
when he gave the prosecution a report that could help prove Michael was innocent and then the prosecution buried it? Or that he never gave it to them because it didn't fit their theory? It's not just sketchy, it's unconstitutional. A Brady violation. Mistrials have been determined over less. But Judge Hudson refused a mistrial here. I'm going to pause now for a short commercial break. Deaver also provided extensive testimony on the blood spatters surrounding Kathleen's body. In his professional opinion, the blood spatters were caused by blows to Kathleen's head, specifically by a fireplace blow poke. As I told you, Deaver also testified about video recorded experiments he did for the investigation. In these experiments, Deaver simulated Kathleen's head by dousing a sponge in red paint and attaching it to a styrofoam head. Then he put the styrofoam head through a series of maneuvers to see what blood spatters would happen. Michael's attorney, David Rudolph, was flabbergasted by the lack of scientific protocol exercised in these experiments. The styrofoam head was not the same weight or shape as Kathleen's. The maneuvers Deaver put the styrofoam head through were wholly unrelated to how Deaver said Michael had killed Kathleen. For example, Deaver dropped the styrofoam head from over 12 feet in the air. But no one was arguing that Kathleen swan dove from the top of the staircase. He also stomped on the head repeatedly. But again, no one was arguing that Kathleen's head had been stomped on. And, by Deaver's own admission, they exaggerated the amount of blood that would be found in that situation. World-renowned forensic scientist Dr. Henry Lee appeared as an expert for Michael's defense. He was stunned at Dwayne Deaver's so-called experiments. Dr. Lee had been to the scene, examined photographs taken by the state, and Michael's clothing. He testified that the blood spatters were not consistent with a beating, citing that there were far too many points of origin. The spatters could instead be caused by a person moving, trying to get up, falling, and doing so again. In the process, Kathleen might have shaken her bloody hair, spattering blood on the wall. She may have coughed up blood. She may have flailed her hands out, trying to catch herself. Lots of little movements that would have sprayed blood everywhere. She falls once and sits up. Blood runs down her face into her eyes and mouth. She is disoriented, coughing, and trying to shake it off. Most people can't see it that way because they picture her lifeless body in photos. Her face is stark white. But Michael said that he wiped blood from her face as he was putting the towels beneath her head. Additionally, Rudolph explained that none of the blood spatters could be effectively examined. As we explored in detail in Part 2, the police allowed the crime scene to be contaminated. Unknown people roamed the Peterson house freely, including one woman, a couple, and a drunk man. As a result, Kathleen's blood had been disturbed numerous times, by wandering strangers, by Michael, by his son Todd, by the medical examiner, by a photographer. The bloody towels placed under Kathleen's head were moved onto a new stair step. Even the emergency workers who removed Kathleen's body dripped blood in new places. Rudolph vehemently argued that all analyses of Kathleen's blood patterns were ineffective. 
There was no way possible to determine what had caused certain blood droplets to be in certain places. After hours of heated cross-examination, a crime scene technician testifying on behalf of the prosecution even agreed that the scene was contaminated, so contaminated, in fact, that it would be challenging to draw conclusions from it. Plus, Michael's shoes and socks had little to no blood. According to Rudolph's cross-examination of crime scene technician Dan George, that was unexpected. If Michael had beaten Kathleen to death, much more blood would have been on his shoes. Overall, the defense asserted that the police had mishandled the investigation so badly that none of the prosecution's evidence should be considered valid. But the prosecution contended that the investigation wasn't mishandled. In fact, they said the police handled the crime scene in a routine and thorough manner. According to the prosecution, crime scenes have never been perfectly contained. That's the dream, but it's not how real police work happens. They admitted that for 30 minutes, the crime scene was not secured. They said that the delay happened because the police initially treated Kathleen's death as an accident. Somehow, a leading officer was told that a woman fell out of her wheelchair and down some stairs. Therefore, it took a while for the police to realize this was a crime scene. But this didn't actually check out with police protocols. A Durham Police Department supervisor told the court that all scenes that involve a death are immediately considered a crime scene. And even though this supervisor arrived at the Petersons' home at 2.50 a.m., the house was not blocked off with yellow crime scene tape until 3.30 a.m. But a different police officer said that crime scenes can be secured without putting up crime scene tape. There were other arguments presented, of course. At one point, Prosecutor Hardin told the jury Kathleen's larynx had been crushed, indicating strangulation, but it hadn't. Defense attorney Rudolph explained that her thyroid cartilage was injured, not her larynx. And there were no other signs of strangulation. Plus, this injury may have been caused a few months prior during a pool accident. Another time, Rudolph accused prosecuting lawyer Hardin of leaking information about Michael's sexuality to the press. Hardin denied it, but it was all over the papers in the weeks before the trial started. It's pretty obvious that Michael's team didn't do that. Once, an expert witness referred to a small evidence container in which an important sample was supposed to be held, a metallic fleck located in Kathleen's pooled blood. But the fleck was missing. I guess that fleck would matter if they were saying that it came from the blowpoke. But again, how are we talking about evidence that cannot be physically entered into evidence? A meteorologist testified that due to the 85% humidity and 50-degree weather, it would have felt fairly cool on the night that Michael and Kathleen were allegedly relaxing by their pool. They brought in a freaking meteorologist to dispute the thought that Michael and Kathleen may have walked down to their pool to smoke? I told you before that not many people even knew Kathleen smoked, but if you want proof, nicotine was in her talk screen. What is so strange about a couple who would not want cigar and cigarette smoke in their house? What is so strange to go enjoy the outside of your home, especially the Peterson's pool area? Nestled in the foliage but cleared of trees, so the sun could come through in the day and the stars at night, the pool was not closed, 
the fountain was running, and Michael said they decided to go down there and sit in the lounge chairs and smoke. They loved to watch and listen to the fountain as they talked and smoked. Really? Why is this so unbelievable? Well, the prosecution needs it to sound preposterous because it's Michael's story. It is his story of how he didn't see Kathleen fall, but came in and found her. But by the end, these arguments weren't given much weight. No one was contending that Michael strangled Kathleen to death. Michael's bisexuality was public knowledge, no matter how it happened. The state had rested its case after all the Liz Ratliff testimony. They did not call one witness who said that the Peterson had a strained or bad marriage, and if there was someone willing to say that, they would have been called. David Rudolph asked for the weekend to decide about his direct evidence. The big decision was whether or not Michael should testify. Michael wanted to, and even the jury consultant said he should. The only thing the defense had brought to the jury so far was scientific testimony. They needed to humanize Michael. But Rudolph counseled against it. It's hard to blame him. Most lawyers do not want their clients to testify. It's very risky, even with someone who is genuinely innocent. No, they had found the blowpoke. That was what they rested on. Rudolph felt he had poked enough holes in all of the prosecution's case. The finances, Kathleen discovering Michael's affairs, and now, most importantly, he had the mysteriously missing blowpoke. The blowpoke that the state had based their whole theory of the murder on. For weeks now, media outlets had called the prosecution's case weak. They didn't have a confession. They didn't have a murder weapon. And they didn't have any eyewitnesses. As the Herald Sun wrote, the case rests almost entirely on circumstantial evidence. Maybe Michael did kill Kathleen, but based on the arguments presented to the jury, could they be certain? Beyond a reasonable doubt. On October 10th of 2003, after deliberating for four days, the jury announced that Michael Peterson was guilty. Before his sentencing, Michael stood up in the courtroom. He turned to face his family sitting behind him. They were devastated. Martha and Margaret were silently sobbing. The judge had warned the entire room that he would arrest anyone who made outbursts. When Michael was asked if he wanted to say anything before he was sentenced, he didn't. He chose to turn around and tell his children repeatedly that it was okay. Everything would be okay. Then, Judge Hudson sentenced Michael to life in prison without parole. After the normal time in a holding jail for the transition, Michael was incarcerated at the Nash Correctional Institution in Nashville, North Carolina. In interviews with the Herald Sun, jurors attributed much of their decision to Kathleen's injuries. They could not imagine Kathleen receiving such severe lacerations from a mere fall. They were also compelled by those rare red neurons. They believed the prosecution's expert testimony that the red neurons meant Kathleen had lain at the bottom of the stairwell for hours. They were probably also influenced by paramedics saying that the blood was dry, even though that was not really proven. But, in Michael's autobiography, Behind the Staircase, he attributed his conviction to two main factors. First, his bisexuality. 
After all, he was standing trial before a conservative Southern jury in the early 2000s. A bisexual cheating husband did not garner much sympathy. And, according to Michael, the second fatal flaw in his case was Rudolph's assertion that Kathleen had fallen down the stairs. It pushed the question of his trial from, did Michael beat Kathleen to death, to did Michael beat Kathleen or did she fall? Once Rudolph claimed Kathleen fell, he had to prove it. And that meant that the jury was evaluating two scenarios, not one. It was more for them to handle and more for them to disbelieve. I don't agree with him. Any defense attorney will tell you they have to give an alternate story for the jury to consider. They are not required to. All they are required to do is prove reasonable doubt to the jury. But it's foolish to think you can rest your case without telling the jury what you think happened. And what else could they say? Michael thought his wife fell. There was no evidence of an intruder. There was nothing else to do. I also think this jury did not like David Rudolph. He tended to be long-winded. He did not sound like a local. A mock jury that a jury consultant put on before the trial said they thought Rudolph came off as slick, not sincere. By the end of the trial, Rudolph listened to his team as they told him that the jury was not with him, that the jury did not like him. So when he gave his closing argument, he apologized if he came off as abrasive or unlikable and implored the jury not to take it out on his client. Something else I found really interesting, one juror named Kelly was interviewed for another podcast and she accused Rudolph's investigator, Ron Jurette, of staring at the jury in a menacing way, trying to intimidate them, which is ridiculous. Jurette was a former policeman and private investigator. He was watching the jury to help Rudolph, to look and see what parts of testimony the jury seemed to believe. That's why he was watching them. And I can throw it back and ask why she was watching the people at the defense table instead of paying attention to the testimony. Michael's defense team submitted their first appeal on October 10th of 2005, two years after his conviction. They reasoned that the court should not have admitted his bisexuality or Liz Ratliff's death as evidence, among other arguments. This first appeal was denied. On October 17th of 2006, Michael appealed again, this time to the North Carolina Supreme Court. His second appeal was also denied. It would be four more years until Michael made any other legal advancements. Interestingly, the North Carolina Supreme Court did rule that the third police search warrant for Michael's computer, which was the key to the bisexuality arguments, was unconstitutional. But in a two-to-one decision, they did not find it prejudicial enough for a new trial. But in February of 2011, Michael submitted a motion for a new trial. After his trial in 2003, evidence came to light against one of the prosecution's key experts, SBI agent Dwayne Deaver. Apparently, since 1993, Deaver had been falsifying, concealing, and altering evidence to support the district attorney's office. Whatever the prosecution needed to hear in court, agent Deaver provided, regardless of the facts. He committed perjury repeatedly over the years, and it severely impacted many people's lives, including Michael Peterson's, and 
the case that blew Deaver's deceit wide open, Greg Taylor. In 1993, Greg Taylor was convicted of murdering a woman in Raleigh. His vehicle was discovered near the woman's dead body. During his trial, Deaver explained that there was blood in Taylor's vehicle, and consequently, Taylor received life in prison. But here's the catch. There was no blood. Taylor was wrongfully convicted. When an independent audit of the SBI called into question the lab's work in 228 criminal cases, Dwayne Deaver's lies were revealed. He had withheld a second, more accurate test that found the substance in Taylor's truck was not blood. After spending 17 years in prison, Greg Taylor was freed and exonerated in February of 2010. Deaver was involved in many, many cases over his two-decade career, including one in which he perjured himself and a man was executed on that evidence. How he was not prosecuted for any of this is beyond me. That man should be in prison for what he did. And Deaver did heavily impact Michael's conviction. During Michael's trial, Deaver testified for seven days, and nearly half of the district attorney's closing arguments were dedicated to Deaver's testimony, his credentials, his evidence, and his opinions. In prosecuting attorney Freda Black's closing statements, she said that Agent Deaver's testimony was obviously central to this case. In one of the most ironic lines of the trial, Freda said when talking about Deaver's findings, quote, If you believe otherwise, well, you're just going to have to believe that Dwayne Deaver is a liar. She praised him and the rest of the SBI as unimpeachable, which is incorrect. We obviously know that now, but you are not supposed to make that argument in the first place. And David Rudolph repeatedly objected as she harped on this idea. But Judge Orlando Hudson sat there mesmerized, overruling Rudolph every time as he enjoyed Freda's performance. But back to this certain unconstitutional argument, both sides have expert testimony, and it's not fair to imply that the state's employees are more trustworthy or tried and true, as Freda kept hammering, tried and true, because they work for us, she intoned. Not only did Dwayne Deaver lie on the stand, Freda Black stood up and hammered home the idea that all SBI agents worked for the jury and that defense experts were just paid performers. And there's more. New evidence found in 2011 revealed that back in December of 2001, Dr. Deborah Radish had not actually determined Kathleen died of blunt force trauma. She was pressured into changing her expert opinion for the autopsy by the then chief medical examiner, John Butts, her boss. This was found in Freda Black's written notes on the case. She had apparently gone to Freda about her concerns. Radish had originally found that Kathleen exsanguinated, bled out, as I said before, and ruled it accidental or rather undetermined. Her boss, Dr. Butts, pressured her into changing it to blunt force trauma and manner of death as homicide. Dr. Butts was under pressure from the Durham police chief. And now we know how everyone's backs get scratched in these offices. Like a good soldier, Radish changed her opinion. Years later, she became chief medical examiner of North Carolina, replacing her boss, Dr. John Butts. 
and there was a photo of the blowpoke. The police had found it in the original searches, photographed it, and put it away. Evidently, people forgot about it, but there had to be at least one person who remembered that photo once the blowpoke became such a big deal. Otherwise, why was that photo not entered into the discovery given to Michael's defense? None of this was found in 2011. David Rudolph initially kept fighting for Michael. He won the new trial, but plea negotiations fell apart and he left the case in 2014. He said he was emotionally spent. Michael's new attorney was making a motion for dismissal based on Dwayne Deaver, but also because the evidence had been improperly stored and new DNA testing was not possible in 2016. But Michael lost this motion. Judge Hudson felt that the new DNA testing would not have helped the defense. David Rudolph did attend this hearing in support of Michael, and it was obvious to him that the new DA did not really want to try the case again, but they would have to come up with a compromise that would satisfy Candace and Lori, Kathleen's sisters, who had stayed very involved and would not have stood by for a complete dismissal of charges. So Rudolph decided to get involved again. He filed two motions, one to suppress all evidence from the third search that had been deemed unconstitutional in appellate court, meaning all the gay pornography and emails, so Michael's sexuality could not be brought in. And he filed a motion asking Hudson to reconsider his ruling on the Ratliff evidence. During a requested conference, Hudson made it clear to prosecutors that the search would be out and said he was seriously reconsidering the Ratliff evidence. Now, he had not ruled on this yet. It was just a conference. But it was enough for the new DA to push an Alford plea to Kathleen's family. I think the Ratliff evidence is some of the worst of what happened in this case. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people bring it up. And as you know, it especially irritates me when they continue to say she was his first wife. It kills me that it wasn't turned over on appeal, but appellate judges often defer to trial judges, and they did it in this case. Hudson was there for all the evidence, and there were enough coincidences in their opinion. It took the Dwayne Deaver explosion to win a new trial, and at least now Hudson had come around on the Ratliff evidence. And I think he pretty much had to side with the appellate court now on the illegal search, so therefore Michael's bisexuality was out. Without these two parts to the case, he could have gotten an acquittal. As I have said before, it is much easier to win an acquittal than a new trial, and actual exoneration is like a legal unicorn. So Hudson reversing himself is incredible. David Rudolph said that while they were waiting for the DA to come back with a plea deal, he went back over the whole case file. There were parts of the file never made available to him before, but due to changes in the North Carolina discovery statutes, now he had everything. He had the photo of the blowpoke, proving that the police and DA had known they had it all along. He now had Freda's notes about Deborah Radish, and worse, he found a fax in the file from Candace Samperini to Deborah Radish, thanking her for explaining, quote, how Michael was guilty. He says on his website he had long suspected Radish of this. I already found it unseemly that they showed the autopsy and crime scene photos to her daughter and sisters right after Kathleen's death to get them on their side. But now Rudolph, 
found something else he could use to impeach Radish because she was not an impartial expert. But still, Michael and David didn't believe they could get a fair trial in Durham. They were both too disillusioned by all this corruption. And Michael's children begged him to take the Alford plea and end all of their misery. To his credit, he fought long and hard because he did not want to say he was guilty, even after spending over eight years in prison. You would think most people would jump at the plea to make it all end. But here's the thing. Maybe Michael's guilty. Maybe he's innocent. But at the end of the day, his case was an example of failure. Failure on the part of the investigating police officers to secure the crime scene. Failure of investigative procedures. Failure on the part of the justice system for using corrupt SBI agents. Failure on the part of the DA and the medical examiner's office for acting improperly. And failure on the part of Judge Hudson for allowing a completely unrelated death to be entered into the trial as evidence. After he took the Alford plea, Michael was sentenced to a maximum of 86 months in prison. He received credit for time previously served, which was 98 months. So on February 24, 2017, 74-year-old Michael Ivor Peterson was released. In an interview with an Associated Press reporter, he explained why he took a guilty plea despite maintaining his innocence. He explained that even though Dwayne Deaver was gone, he didn't trust the culture of corruption in the Durham Police Department and District Attorney's Office. He told the journalist, I don't believe they would play fair. In Michael's autobiography, Behind the Staircase, he wrote that he did not know for sure how Kathleen died, but he really thought she fell. It was as simple as that. But there are some people who believe and believe passionately that they know exactly how Kathleen died. And according to them, it wasn't a simple slip down the stairs. And it wasn't Michael Peterson. It was an owl. And you know what? The owl theory makes a surprising amount of sense. I'm going to pause now for a final commercial break. Several raptor experts examined pictures of Kathleen's head lacerations and they concluded that these injuries could be caused by the talons of a raptor, specifically an owl, a barred owl. After Michael's trial in 2003, there was a video-recorded raptor attack only 23 miles away from the Peterson home in Durham. And there were also reports of raptors living in the woods near the Peterson home. Keep in mind, raptors include hawks, eagles, falcons, and owls. They're bigger birds with hooked beaks and sharp talons, and they were known to frequent the same area where the Petersons lived. So here's the owl theory. On that late night in December of 2001, after saying goodnight to Michael, Kathleen did not go directly to bed. Instead, she started to set up her Christmas decorations, as she did every year. After all, Kathleen and Michael had planned to do the decorations the next morning. But since Kathleen had an unexpected conference call, she wanted to get a head start. As she was putting out these decorations, which were, which were white fake reindeer, an owl swooped down and attacked Kathleen, grasping onto her head. It either thought the decorations were prey or she was, but either way, it struck her suddenly. After freeing herself from the clutches of the owl by desperately grabbing at her hair, Kathleen was disoriented and in pain. 
bleeding profusely, she ran back into the house. As she did, that left a bloody handprint on the frame of the door and drops of blood on the front walkway. Then she fell, attempting to go up the stairs. People wonder why she was trying to go up the staircase after this. Well, at the top of the staircase was a linen closet, and she probably wasn't thinking clearly. While the owl theory was born in 2003, around the time of Michael's trial, it gained steam in 2008. Larry Pollard, a neighbor of the Petersons, who also happened to be a lawyer, led the charge. In August of 2008, he held a press conference in front of the Durham County Courthouse. During the conference, Pollard explained the owl theory. He used a taxidermied owl posed mid-flight to demonstrate the danger of their sharp talons. He also referenced the twigs and feather fragments found on Kathleen's body. Additionally, strands of Kathleen's hair were in her hands, as if she was pulling at the owl's talons that were entangled in her hair. And we're not talking about a few hairs. There were 25 in one hand and 36 in the other. Some were pulled out by the root, some cut off sharply. The state had always contended the ones cut off sharply supported the blowpoke theory, which was now debunked. Even if she was using her hands to shield her head from a beating, why was she pulling her own hair out like that? Not only do the owl's razor-sharp talons explain the lacerations on Kathleen's scalp, the attack explains the blood drops found outside on the walk and the blood smear on the door. The DA tried to explain the lacerations from a beating, even though her skull was not fractured and she didn't suffer traumatic brain injury. It was more like knife wounds than a beating, but they couldn't explain it in any other way, so it had to be a beating. And the DA didn't even try to explain the blood outside or on the door. Michael's defense attorney, David Rudolph, explained that he could not use the owl theory in the 2003 trial, not because it was unrealistic, but because he only discovered it a few days before his closing argument. It was too late to be entered as evidence. But Rudolph agreed that there was some real credibility to the theory. In March 2017, after Michael's Alford plea, he asked the court to give him the feather fragment evidence so it could be tested. He had an expert identify if the feather fragments were even from an owl. They were. According to ABC, an expert in analyzing microscopic fragments determined that the feathers found near Kathleen grow under the talons of an owl. When owls attack something, they leave behind these small particle feathers. Larry Pollard did submit a brief on Michael's behalf asking for a new trial for the owl theory. It just never saw the inside of a courtroom. If you've ever seen the Dateline special on Michael's case, you've seen a man who had been attacked by an owl, and it was caught on security footage. It's in season 25 on Peacock now if you want to watch it. He said it felt like he got hit in the head with a baseball bat, and he had scratches and bruises near his eyes, just like Kathleen did. Also, I'm going to encourage you to watch the HBO Max series, based on the Staircase documentary. I know it sounds crazy, but hear me out. First of all, and this is a spoiler, the series shows three different scenarios of how Kathleen could have died. An accident, an owl, a murder. And I am here to tell you that when you see the three theories actually acted out, it is extremely effective. 
all three scenarios look plausible. And if you know this case well, or you were just learning about it, it's hard to picture what really happened to Kathleen. Why would blood run down the front of her face? Why did she stand up and slip in her own blood? If you watch this, you can see it. I know it's fictionalized, but I also know how difficult it has been for over two decades now for people to visualize what could have happened to Kathleen. This is also my way of telling you that though I am now finished with the Peterson case, there will be one more part. Part four is going to be about the pop culture of the Peterson case. You may have wondered why I didn't mention the documentary much, and that's why. I plan to talk about the docuseries and the HBO fictional series and the books and smaller documentaries and some podcasts about the case. There was even a short-lived NBC sitcom based on the case. I still don't know if Michael killed Kathleen. Despite all the corruption from the Durham officials, it is still a possibility. Despite the affable, relaxed man you see in the docuseries, he could be, as many have suggested, a sociopath or a narcissist. There are a million reasons why a likable guy could do abhorrent things. Or maybe you think he's not likable. You find him to be an insufferable asshole. That doesn't make him a murderer. That's another thing that kind of kills me about this case. I think it's entirely possible that Michael did kill Kathleen, but he didn't beat her to death. And I don't think there was a financial motive, nor was it about his sexuality. It could have been about any mundane thing, which means it probably wouldn't be first-degree murder. Think about it. Michael and Kathleen are smoking and drinking and talking. Kathleen is stressed about her conference call and other work issues, while Michael just wants to bask in his book option glory. They argue, she walks away. Unlike you, Michael, I have to get up for work tomorrow. Now he's mad and trying to argue with her. He follows her inside, still arguing, and as she tries to walk up the stairs, he grabs her arm. She falls, she hits her head, and it's bad. Michael runs to get towels to help, and as he does, she comes to and tries to stand up, getting blood on the bottom of her feet, and then falling and hitting her head again. All that blood could have been from her hitting her head just right on a sharp edge. I told you that it looks like the skin pulled back from a peach. Hitting her head again, tearing that skin further. But that's not first-degree murder. That's not even second-degree. That would be closer to a kind of manslaughter if it was an accident. But then Michael lied. Or maybe it was worse. He yanked her down the stairs in anger. That thyroid cartilage injury she had is more often seen in car accidents from seat belts. What if Michael grabbed her sweatshirt and yanked hard enough to not only injure that cartilage, but pull her down the stairs, where she hit her head on either the chairlift or crown molding as she fell? Then he panics and runs for towels to help. She sits up and tries to get up falling again. But that is still probably second-degree murder. He killed her in a fit of rage. He didn't load a gun. He didn't go find a blowpoke to beat her with. It was a stupid fight, but he did strike out in anger. But then he lied. Either one of these scenarios for murder make much more sense than a beating death. 
Police were set on it being first-degree murder, no matter what Michael said. But what about the prosecution? They got lucky in his trial. Only charging him with first-degree murder and only giving one possibility of that night that Kathleen was beaten to death? Think about Casey Anthony while you ponder what I just said. It was truly a gamble. They could have put more charges on the bill. They could have explained these scenarios to you like I just did. And maybe Michael Peterson would have gone to prison for the right crime. Instead, they launched a homophobic attack with a very weak motive. I don't think for a second that Michael killed Kathleen for her insurance money. And I don't think she knew about his bisexuality. I do think Michael lies. But the police and the medical examiner and the DA worked hard to prove it was a premeditated murder. They exhumed Elizabeth Ratliff and basically tried him for two murders. They hid evidence, the photo of the blowpoke, the note about Deborah Radish, the Lumalite test on Michael's shirt, and we could go a dozen episodes on the SBI corruption scandal that Deaver was a part of. Before the SBI scandal broke, it was common practice that prosecutors and other superiors, including law enforcement, were giving reports on SBI agents, reports that commended or penalized their work, reports that decided commendations, promotions, raises. These scientists' professional futures were tied to their conviction rates. They worked closely with the police, the pathologists, and medical examiners, and of course, the district attorney's offices. When we talk about corruption in our systems like this, it sounds like something you watch on television. That won't really happen to me if I go to court. It's also what makes Freda Black's argument about how the SBI works for us all the more egregious. They didn't work for juries. They didn't work for defendants. And so they damn sure didn't work for victims. If your loved one was murdered, wouldn't you want the right killer behind bars? The scandal brought about a complete overhaul. It was long overdue. There is a new state forensics There is a new state forensics lab that is not tied to the DA's office. Their careers are not dependent on the DA. They are still employed by the state, but it is a separate office, so there is no conflict of interest and this kind of systematic corruption isn't likely. And forensic testing is ever evolving. Hair and fiber evidence no longer holds the same weight it did in court. Bite marks are considered junk science, and blood spatter is slowly being looked at more carefully as well. If the Innocence Project had not gotten involved in Greg Taylor's case, Michael Peterson would still be in prison. Even though Deborah Radish did have a crisis of conscience and finally admitted she was pressured into changing her opinion. But Freda didn't tell anyone and Deborah kept quiet too. And then she was made chief medical examiner of North Carolina. She did what her boss told her to do, and now she has his job. So who did all this nonsense fall on? You would think someone would be responsible for this utter shit show. Well, not Jim Harden. He was made a superior court judge and just retired at age 66. Judge Orlando Hudson carried on in his courtroom as usual until retirement but not Freda. After her short-lived fame from the Peterson trial, Freda Black probably thought she would be set at the DA's office. Except now, her name appears in appeals documents 
highlighting her improper arguments. For whatever reason, the appeals courts didn't think her behavior was prejudicial enough to grant Peterson a new trial. I heartily disagree, because they work for us, don't they? She works for us. Isn't that what Freda told us? Her egregious antics and homophobic attacks may not have won Michael a new trial, but they sure followed her around for the rest of her career. It is her name on those appeals making an improper argument, not Hardin's. Appeals anyone can see. They're on my website. They quote her entire closing argument. It is painful. So where did Freda land? After two DWIs, she wound up working for a dry cleaners after she was fired from one DA's office. And she ran for office unsuccessfully twice herself. She died at the age of 57 of end-stage liver disease due to chronic alcoholism. She became a hated figure to the LGBTQ community. But at the end of her life, she attended a church who welcomed the queer community. It would seem she tried to make amends. She would probably be more sad and sympathetic to me now if I hadn't just watched her on the Dateline special, ghoulishly smiling as she talked about how well-preserved Liz Ratliff's body was. Liz was not just a corpse for her trial. She was a human being. But hey, Jim Harden became a Superior Court judge, and these days he's retired at 66 years old and probably enjoys his golf and his grandchildren. The good old boy club never changes for some people. Michael's lawyer, 73-year-old David Rudolph, is still practicing in Charlotte, North Carolina. He is still a very well-respected attorney and often gives talks about Michael's case. He is a big fan of the owl theory now. Michael's first wife, Patty, died of a heart attack in July of 2021. She was 78 years old. At the time of her death, she and Michael lived together platonically. Their son Clayton told reporters they were companions. They took care of each other. Clayton is now 49 years old and lives in Baltimore. 47-year-old Todd, Michael's youngest son with Patty, seems to have some major issues recently. I don't know how much stock to put into it because he took the videos down, but not long ago, he posted some videos accusing his father of killing his mom, Patty, Kathleen, and Liz Ratliff. He seemed very paranoid and off in these short videos. I hope he gets or got the help he needs. He had always supported his father before, so I think this was very strange. Not that he can't change his mind, but he did take the videos down. He has not commented since, and neither has Michael. So who knows? 40-year-old Martha Ratliff, the youngest of Michael's adoptive daughters, is a psychotherapist in Utah. And 41-year-old Margaret Ratliff, the eldest of Michael's adoptive daughters, is an actress and producer in California. She has just worked as executive producer on a documentary called Subject. It's about people who appear in documentaries, the ethics of it all, and what happens to them. 41-year-old Caitlin Atwater, Kathleen's daughter from a previous marriage, won a $25 million wrongful death lawsuit against Michael in 2008. It is doubtful that she collected a penny, though she did successfully sue Nortel for the payouts they gave to Michael right after her mother's death. Today, she lives in the Washington, D.C. area.
It hurts my heart that Caitlin and Margaret and Martha never spoke again. These sisters lost their mother and each other. Michael Peterson will be 80 years old this October. He lives a quiet life. One of my Facebook group members said they saw him in Target not long ago. There really isn't much more to his story except for the way it lives on in pop culture. Not just the HBO series, but in so many ways. I hope you'll join me for that episode. It will be way shorter, but I think it's really interesting how much this case has seeped into our culture. I like to study big cases like this, but I rarely like to cover them. But we are officially at the end of Kathleen Peterson's case, and sadly, we're left with more questions than answers. I have come to think of Michael Peterson as a cipher. He is what you want to see. If you think he is a murderer, there's nothing anyone can do to change that. My only wish is that you see that he did not get a fair trial. And if the state of North Carolina could not convict him the ethical way, then they should have dropped the charges. The only person who truly knows what happened on the night of December 9th 2001 is Kathleen Peterson because I'm not even sure Michael really knows anymore all we're left with is speculation endless speculation about Michael Peterson that will have us arguing about this case forever it's like so many other famous unsolvable cases now you truly get to choose your own ending here I hope you will join me for the pop culture portion of this series I could have sprinkled it throughout these episodes, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought I needed to stick to only the facts and block out the cacophony of the Michael Peterson show, for which I admit I am now a contributor. I will give you a taste. It is what made me want to cover Michael's case in the first place. I listened to an interview with Colin Firth, who played Michael in the HBO series. He said he was really only given one direction from the showrunners. They told him to watch the documentary, read, and do whatever research he wanted to, and then decide for himself if Michael was guilty or innocent, and play the part that way. It's genius. I love it. I love that even the showrunners weren't really sure, and they didn't want to influence their actor. There is really no way for anyone to be sure. Which sends home my point. Michael Peterson is a cipher. You can project on him guilt or innocence, but you will never really know. Southern Fraud True Crime is hosted and produced by me, Erica Kelly. Today's episode was researched and written by me and Andrea Marshbank, and of course, all editorial opinions are my own. Mother of God, this was 17,000 words and the longest episode I've ever recorded. Southern Fraud's original music is by Rob Harrison of Gamma Radio and the original graphic artist by Coley Horner. If you have any case suggestions, please go to my website and click on the listener suggestion tab. This is the best way for me to get those little known cases y'all always send me. Please remember I do not accept suggestions on social media private messages. With three platforms to manage, that is very overwhelming for me. I hope you understand. But please come join our Facebook group, Southern Fraud True Crime Fans Discussion Group, where we swap recipes, worship Dolly Parton, and share memes. I much prefer spending my social media time in our lovely group. We do, of course, discuss true crime, not just Southern fraud, but all kinds. But it is still very much a Southern lifestyle group. Our group is a safe and fun corner of Facebook, and by God, we mean it when we say no shit asses allowed. 
It's not just a motto, it's how we run the group. If you enjoyed today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend or rate and review on iTunes. I'm also on all large platforms like iHeart, Stitcher, Spotify, and now Amazon and Audible. Thank you so much for your patience and waiting for this last episode. And until next time, thanks so much for listening. Y'all take care.